All right. Uh, once again, well, welcome all to Witten Bible Church. Um, we have been, for the last week, last few weeks, we have been going through our typical traditional celebration of Advent in which we take the time to meditate about, in these four longings we all have, we take the time to talk about hope, love, joy, and peace. Um, and the way we're doing it uh, this year, as you heard before, is we're doing it by singing. We are singing ourselves through Advent by looking at different psalms, which are songs, that talk about this topic. So far we talked about hope, and we talked about love, and today we're going to talk about joy. And to do that, we're going to be looking into Psalm 16, uh, which I think is a beautiful psalm. So I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word as a sign of reverence to him and his word. If you're still here, could you please say, I'm here? Yeah, that was kind of depressing. Let's do it again. If you're here, could you please say, I'm here? There it is. That feels more like Christmas, you know? Psalm 16, starting in verse 1. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Verse 4. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out our uh, libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. Verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of the Lord. You may take a seat. Today I'm asking three questions uh, to the text. Why joy? What's joy? And why Advent? Why joy? What's joy? And why Advent? And if you have been with us through this series, you, you probably noticed that I've been asking the same questions every week with the different topics. What is different today, though, is that I'm usually starting with the question, what is? So I could give you a biblical definition, and then I work my, my way from there, right? But if you also notice, today I, I'm flipping the questions, and I want to start with the question, why joy? And the reason why I want to start with that question is because I, I want to help you see how relevant joy is to all of us. And how is it that all of us not only want joy, but need joy. Amen? Actually, the two words that I'm going to be using is the word joy and happiness, which, you know, some scholars that get really uh, stuck in that, you could say, well, happiness is different than joy. Joy is a different thing than happiness. I really don't care. Joy and happiness to me is the same thing. So if I go back and forth using the same, the, those terms, you know what I mean. 
And I'm going to make the argument that joy is not one of those things that you just happen to want. It's, it's a thing that we really, really need. And part of the reason why I could say that, even as a nation, is because it's part of the Declaration of Independence. If it's part of the Declaration of Independence, it must be important, wouldn't you think? So this is what the Declaration of Independence says, and I quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I find that interesting because the writers of the Declaration of Independence put the pursuit of happiness and life and liberty at the same level. So for some reason, these people understood that joy is not just one of those nice things to have, but that we must have it. That is a necessity that we cannot live without joy, and that's part of the reason why we crave it and long for it. Now, you've got to ask the question, why is it? That as people, like human beings, we need joy. And I'm going to make the argument, uh, which is the same argument that I make in almost for every single one of the topics, is because we, you and I were created for joy. We don't function well without joy because we were created for joy. And you, somebody's going to ask, Hannibal, where did you get that from? And I'm glad you asked the question because I got the answer right here. I know that we were created for joy because that was God's original design for his humanity. If you guys remember in Genesis 1 and 2, God created Adam and Eve. And, uh, and Adam and Eve are living in this place that is full of harmony, full of peace, full of joy. Perfect communion with the Father. Perfect communion with one another. Perfect communion with the creation. We were created. We were meant to be living in a world that was full of joy. But what happened in Genesis chapter 3? Satan comes into the picture. And he tricks Adam and Eve into believing that God was kind of a joy killer. In which if he asked us to submit to his commandments, it's because he wants to take joy away. That is the premise there. And from that point, from that point on, every single one of us are born with this desire to satisfy joy. And yet... Not being able to find it. At least not the way we want to. Since that moment on, every single one of us have been seeking, longing for, and craving for joy. And we still haven't found what we're looking for, like Bono says. Now, I want to give you some evidences that prove that to be true. Did you know that we are one of the top countries in the world that spend an inordinate amount of time and resources in leisure? Like compared to the rest of the world, the amount of money and resources and time that we put into leisure, it's crazy. But if that brings happiness, then somebody needs to ask the question, why is it that we still, as a nation, struggle so much? Why is it that in our culture, the statistics about worry and sadness and anger and depression and suicide are extremely, extremely high? Isn't it supposed to be happiness be found in 
vacation, having a good time, um, watching good mu- movies and enjoying good music and going to a nice restaurant. Is there anything wrong with leisure? Of course not. But then somebody needs to ask the question, why is it that this thing is still not working? I mean, you got to ask yourself that question. How many of you guys like music and movies and a good dinner and a good meal? How many of you guys are super boring and you don't like any of that stuff? <laughs> That's not true. See, you, you, somebody needs to ask the question, why is it that we spend so much money and time seeking after happiness and we're still struggling so much? Actually, our obsession with joy and happiness is so profound that it affects everything, influences everything, and dictates everything. And I want to give you two examples. We are part of a culture, we are part of a world, we are part of a country that because our desire to pursue for happiness, um, that in our desire to pursue for happiness, we have equated happiness at the, or we have, we have embraced happiness at the embrace of morality. You know what I mean by that? Simple. The cultural premise is this. If it makes me happy, I should do it. Even if it's not perceived, if it's perceived as wrong. That's the cultural premise. If it makes me happy, then it has to be okay. Even if everyone else says that it's wrong. Can you see what's wrong with that? You wouldn't allow me to say that. You you wouldn't allow a pastor to say that. And the implication, the problem with that is that if that is true, then all morality is out the door. If I say, you know what, I like to cheat, I like to steal, and I like to be harsh. And any of you would say, well, Hannibal, that's wrong. And I would say, says who? Because if he makes me feel happy, it should be okay. Can you see how in our desperate uh, search for happiness, we are willing even to compromise morality? Let me give you another example. What about our definition of success? This is the cultural premise. If I make it to the top, if I achieve my dreams, if I get the job I want, if I find myself in the stage of life that I always wanted, then and only then, I will be happy. That is the cultural premise. What is the problem with that? Number one, we all know that that is not true. Number two, we all know that that is not true because we always want more. And number three, we know that that is not true because nothing is never enough. Like we all know that. And yet, we think that we will be completely happy if we reach our goals. You know, for those of you that are type A's, that drives you crazy. This is something that so many Christians forget, but even secular people know. Matt Damon, 1997. Right after he won the Oscar for Good Will Hunting. Great movie. That's a good movie. That's a movie that I could recommend. He says this in an interview after he won the Oscar. Imagine chasing after the Oscar and not getting it. Or getting it finally in your 80s or your 90s. With all of your life behind and you realizing what an unbelievable waste of your life. 
It cannot fill you up. If that's the hole you have, it won't fill you up. This is a man, actually when he said it, he was about 27, in the top of his career. And he realizes that that dream was not enough. An 18-year-old student, years ago, his name is Kyle Martin. He was the valedictorian of his class. And in his final speech to the senior class, he says this, this time last year, I found out that I was in the running for this title. It was then that I decided that I wanted it. So I worked hard for it, sacrificed for it, and yes, I stressed for it, and I got it. And our senior award ceremony, it felt so good when I heard my name announced with this title. It was so good for about 15 seconds. Yes, 15 seconds of my heart racing and my adrenaline pumping. 15 seconds of, yeah, I won. 15 seconds of being at the top of the pile of, the pile of my accomplishments. And he felt euphoric. So he says that, and the entire class is like, yeah. But he pauses for a few seconds. And then he says this. But there must come a 16th second. And in the 16 second, sat down in my seat, I looked at my silver stall that says valedictorian, and I thought, that's it. What just happened? Why I'm not feeling anything else? And to be honest, I don't even know what was expecting. A parade of balloons to drop? Or maybe I was hoping that all of my problems will fade away uh, in comparison to my, my amazing achievement? But none of that happened, not even in my heart I felt nothing, and I was shocked. Isn't that crazy? That in our crazy desire to find happiness and joy, not even our achievements can satisfy. Can you see what these two guys have in common? Now, is there anything wrong with pursuing happiness? Of course not. But you got to ask the question, why is it that we still can't find it? And this is not just for non-believers. This is for Christians. Listen up, church. The problem is not with the desire. That's not the problem. Because we were created for it. The problem is how we define happiness and how we go about it. The problem is not with the desire. We were created for it. The problem is how we define happiness and how we go about it. The problem with the cultural definition of happiness is that it's always bound to circumstances. If I have this, then I'll be happy. The problem with the cultural definition of happiness is dependent of circumstances. I'm happy as long as I have, I have this. But if it goes away, what do I have then? See, if you really think about that, if you follow the logical conclusion of that, then you will realize that if that's true, then we could never, ever, ever, ever be truly happy, happy in this broken world. Because nothing stays forever. Everything changes. People change, career change, everything changes. 
And there is always a struggle and pain right around the corner. How are we supposed to be happy in this broken world? The problem is not with the desire. The problem is how we define it, how we go about it. And with that now, then I can actually answer the second question. What is joy? And now we've got to dig into the text. And in the text we find King David. And he uses four words that go together and function as synonyms. In, verses, in verse 9, he uses the word glad and the word rejoices. In verse 11, he uses the word joy and eternal pleasures. Now here we got to pause for a second because David is, is describing what he feels. He is giving us a description of an, of an experience, emotional experience he's gone through. But what I want you to notice is that for David, emotions are not just emotions. Emotions flow from some objective reality. See, I, I think that that's something that as Christians, if you're a believer, you, you have to remember. Because in this group alone... The, the, the tendency is to divide emotions into two different groups. Those of us that make too much of emotions or those of us that make too little of emotions. For those of us that make too much of emotions, the tendency is to equate a spiritual vitality to, what, what, to when we feel God. You know the promise is with that? That sometimes you don't feel God. And sometimes... When God is bringing something upon your life, your life, you don't feel good. Because if you feel good, there's something wrong with you. So we have to be careful when we make emotions, we make something supreme. But the other mistake is when we actually undermine emotions. And undermine feelings. And we think that our relationship with God is just based on knowledge and doctrine and theology and what we hold here. You know, I was thinking about this example, but this is, you, you can see how this plays out. For example, when people say things like, love is, not a love is a choice, not an emotion. You know, it drives me crazy, man. Because I think that is partly true. I think that love is a choice. You, you choose to love when, when, even when you don't feel like loving, loving. Amen? I mean, if you marry, you better say amen. You choose to love. But if you never feel anything, man, you are dead. So, when David is using words like gladness and rejoicing and joy and pleasure, he is describing what he feels. But these are not superficial emotions. I love the way one of the scholars puts it. He says, this is an emotionally engaged realism. The joy and the happiness that David is experiencing comes from something real. Something objective. So we've got to ask the question, what is that? Verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy 
in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Notice that David is putting emotions and truth together. Notice that David is, is describing his emotions as something that flow out of the reality of being before the presence of God. Notice that he's not just saying, I feel that God is close to me. He's saying, I feel pleasure and joy and gladness and all of these things because I am before the presence of God. This is what I will call relational presence, the relational presence of God. This is existential language. This is something we feel and experience, not just know. What is interesting about the word pleasure, though, is that it could be translated as lovely or pleasant or delightful. Look at what David is saying. I feel joy because being in the presence of God is lovely, pleasant, and delightful. It's not just Bible. It's not just theology. It's because he knows and feels that he is before the presence of God. Now, this gets super interesting because the word presence, which we have already used in this series, in many other passages in the Bible, is translated as the face of God. Actually, you hear that every week. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. You hear this every week in our benediction, the thing that we do at the end of the service. So we grab a section from Psalm 67 that comes from Numbers chapter 6, in which you hear us saying to you, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. So if you were not here, just let me give you a quick summary of what I said two weeks ago. When the Bible talks about the presence of God in terms of the face of God, He's not talking about just the, the presence of God because he's God. He's talking about the presence of God because he is personal. Therefore, what the text says is that God enjoys having a face-to-face conversation with his people. That we have a God, that the God we worship is a God of proximity. That he's not just so away from us, that has no idea how we are, that he's really, really close to us. Personal presence. Now... What I explained is that we all know by nature the difference, actually, between being present and being personal. I'm not going to use the same example that I used last time, but I thought of another example. This is how we all know that the difference between being present and being personal. Have you ever had a conversation with someone that you never knew? And as you're having this conversation, the person approaches you really, really close to you, face to face. Right? What's the... What is the first reaction if you don't know that person? You move back. And the person, if he's weird, they move forward. And you don't say it, but in your head, you go, get away from me, you weirdo. Why? Because we know the difference between being personal and being present. So look, look, what, look what David says. That his joy flows from the reality that God not only is personal, not only is present, but personal. 
He's close to me face to face. But there's something else that we got to learn about that phrase, which is, I think is extremely important. Is that when the Bible uses the term the face of God, it's another way in how God describes how he delights in his people. And that we can also understand. Because by nature, when you really love somebody, when you really love somebody, it could be a family member, it could be a romantic relationship, it could be a friend, it could be anybody. If you really like, love somebody, you really enjoy having conversations face to face. Have you ever seen a healthy couple that they turn their back to each other? And you say, oh, that's an amazing couple. No, no, no. Because if we really love somebody, the most natural thing is to want to face the person, face to face. Which is also the reason why we, when we are having issues with somebody, and we're having disagreements, the first thing we do is to stop facing each other. I mean, maybe I'm ta- ta- saying too much about my relationship with my wife, but when we are struggling, man, we, we made this commitment, which, by the way, is a very healthy commitment in my opinion. Regardless of how much, this is not even in the notes. Hopefully it's from the Holy Spirit. (laughs) When we are having issues as a couple, we made this commitment the day we got married that regardless of how upset we are, we're always going to sleep in the same bed. Because the bed is part of our covenant. This is what is interesting. That when we are upset, the first thing that we do even as we're not breaking our covenant, is we face the wall. Why do we do that? Because we know that facing each other is pretending like if nothing is happening. And what David says is that our God is not just present. It's not just personal. But but that if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ... God delights in his people. And when we understand that, then we actually understand the definition of joy. Listen up. Joy, from a biblical perspective, is not something we pursue. Let us think. It's not something we chase. It's not something we create. Joy for the believer is the byproduct, the result of us understanding, realizing, believing, and embracing that we are always before the presence of a personal, delightful God. That's joy. It's not something we chase. It's not something we pursue. It's what we experience and feel when we realize, embrace, and believe that we are always, always before the presence of a personal, delightful, perfect, awesome God. See, it is only when we embrace that that then our joy is not bound to circumstances. Why? Because God is not bound to circumstances. 
God is always with us regardless of what we go through, regardless of what happens or doesn't happen. This is why David could say in verses 1 and 2 what he said. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. You know how crazy that last statement is? Apart from you, I have nothing good. No vacation is good enough. No career is good enough. No family is good enough. No relationship is good enough. No achievement is good enough. Nothing can truly satisfy the hunger for joy. Only when we could say to God, apart from you, I have nothing good. Why? Because he's always present, always personal, always, he always delights in his people. That's what joy comes from. It's not bound to circumstances. And not only is it not bound to circumstances, but it's not dependent of circumstances. You know why? Because God is transcendent. Therefore, he's not limited by anything, restricted by anything, and therefore, if he's with us, his joy is always transcendent. He's not restricted by anything, and he's not determined by anything. If where God is, there is joy. This is what verse 5 says. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. You know, that, that verse is a little bit hard to translate in, in our terms. I'm going to try to do my best. I think that what David is saying there is this. Everything I am and everything I have. Everything I win or everything I lose. It's okay with me. I am content. Because you are my portion. You are my cup. And I'm always secure. Regardless of what I achieve or what I lose. Can you see how the joy that the Bible talks about is not bound to circumstances, not determined by circumstances? It only depends on one thing. That God is there. Actually, the joy that the Bible describes is so amazing that I can actually say that Christianity is the only, quote-unquote, religion in the world that gives us something so powerful that even when we suffer, we can experience joy. Because it's not bound to anything. This is the only possible explanation why someone like Paul in prison writes a letter of joy. Knowing that he's about to die, writes a letter of joy. It's the only possible explanation. David has a very similar experience to Paul. And that's why in verse 8 he says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him on my right hand, I will not be shaken. See, if we were a prosperity gospel church, we will not be able to say that verse. Because for some people, that verse will mean that the Lord, in order for us to not be shaken, the Lord needs to deliver you from problems. But that's not what the Bible says. 
Regardless of what we go through, David says, we keep our eyes always on the Lord. And it's the, po- the only possible explanation to say it is possible for us to go through pains and struggle and lose loved ones and lose everything and get sick and get persecuted and yet say, I have joy. Because our joy is not bound to circumstances, not determined by circumstances. It's bound to one person, the presence of God, the personal presence of God. That's what joy is. So I got to ask you a question, church. Actually, a set of questions. How do you define joy? Because your definition changes the way you live your life. Where are you looking for that joy? Because Whatever you're looking, wherever you're looking for, that determines the way you live your life. What is it that you have been sacrificing for that joy? Do you have joy even in the midst of suffering? See, I think that those are good questions because no one can live without joy. But as far as believers, we don't believe, really believe. That joy is only found before the presence of a personal, delightful, relational God. Then we have nothing. We have nothing. There is a verse in the text that it doesn't make, from a human perspective, it doesn't seem like if it fits the rest of the text. But when we think about joy... It makes sense. Why would David put it there? Like out of the blue, he starts talking about idolatry. In verse 4, for example, he says, those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. And you got to ask the question, why is it that David is talking about that there? Well, I think that one possible explanation is this. David knows. Listen up, church. David knows that unless we have our joy in the presence of God, we get our joy from the presence of God and God alone. We are always going to try to find that joy in other things or other people we treat like if they were God. If we don't get our joy from God, we will always look for something or someone that we elevate in our hearts like if they were God just to experience some sort of joy. You know what's interesting? Things and people can give you a certain level of joy. But it always goes away. I don't care if you're married and you have amazing kids. That joy is never permanent. You know when I learned that? When I got married. And when I got kids. And when I became a pastor. Yeah! Two seconds, man. I don't like you. So what do we do? We chase for another thing. And another, another person. And another accomplishment. To experience joy for a fragment of time. And then it goes away again. And again, and again, and again. David knows 
that the only way we can experience true, everlasting joy is when it's not bound to anything or anybody, but only the personal, close, beautiful, delightful, perfect presence of God. So obviously the natural question is, how do we do that? I'm going to be super fast on this because I, I, I included a bunch of stuff that was not in the script. You need three things. CPR. Huh? CPR. Community. Prayer. And the Redeemer. Community. You know, there's a verse. Actually, let me show you this verse. Everyone knows this verse. Psalm 133, verse 1. How good and pleasant it is for God's people to live together in unity. How many of you guys have heard that verse before? It's beautiful. You know what that means? That you don't function well without other people. Do you know why is it that you need other people? The logic, the biblical logic is super simple. Because if we are gods, we're supposed to be, and God lives in us, and he does, then we are the presence of God to one another. Did you ever know that? We are the presence of God to one another. Part of the reason why we struggle with joy is because we do not know how to live in community. You know, it's interesting. This is not just one thing that Christian people say or it's in the Bible. This is one of those things that the secular world is trying to catch up to us. There was a study done. There's a, good, uh, uh, a book called The Good Life. Super long. It's a study done by Harvard. It took them 80 years. I, I only went through the first two chapters because I got everything I wanted just from those first two chapters. And after 80 years of studying a group of people, this is the conclusion they made. What makes people happy is people. Relationships. Don't you think that we need one another to experience the joy that only comes from the presence of God? Second thing is prayer. One of the fastest things we forget is that we are always before the presence of God. Listen, I do this for a living, man. I'm teaching you how to be aware of the presence of God, and I forget it all the time. This is why I have made it a practice that I put in my phone a reminder almost every four hours in which something just clicks. And he says, breathe. You know what that means for me? Pray. Adore the Lord, worship the Lord, be thankful, bring your request before him, confess your sins. Whatever happens on this path, I call that breathing prayers. Bing. If you're not intentional about prayer, the first thing that goes away is your joy. And the third thing we need not only we need community, but not only we need prayer. But number three, you need to see your source of joy, not just in the presence of God, but in the presence of God fully displayed in your Redeemer. And with that, I go to question number three. Don't worry, that'll be fast. Why is it that Jesus came? Why is it that Jesus is called Emmanuel? I don't know if you have noticed this, but I've been saying this for the last three weeks. There are all these songs in the, in the Gospel of Luke that talk about Jesus, that are connected about Jesus' birth. And I was looking at all those songs again, and I realized that there's the common denominator in all those experiences was joy. 
So in Luke chapter 1, for example, Elizabeth hears that, that she's going to have a, a baby, John the Baptist. And when Mary is having a conversation with her about Jesus being the Messiah, John, inside her mom's womb, leaps for joy. Isn't that crazy? And then you got the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. The angels are speaking to them, and they're super afraid. You don't remember what the angels told them. Do not be afraid. I bring good news, uh, good news that, will cr- that will cause great joy for all people. Have you ever wondered why there are four songs connected to the birth of Jesus? Because singing is an expression of joy. Why do you think that Jesus came? Because he knew how desperate we are for what he can give us. So if you're a believer, stop chasing joy. Please do. Chase Jesus. And if you get him, you get everything else. And if you're not a believer just yet, maybe it's time for you to stop chasing and come to him. Amen? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we get to talk about this amazing, beautiful topic. Because we were created for it. I pray, Lord, that you may not allow this Christmas to go without us experiencing the reality of the joy that we find in the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because at the end of the day, Joy is not just a concept. Joy is a person. His name is Jesus. The personal, presence, delightful, beautiful, face-to-face presence of our God is Jesus Christ. So please help us get close to him, cling to him, adore him. Until our joy is complete. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus. And we all say. I gave you three things that you need to remember. In order for you to experience joy. Community. Prayer. And the Redeemer. There's one more thing that you cannot forget though. And is that we could never forget how costly our joy was. You know what's the irony of this? Jesus had to go to the cross to lose for a fragment of time the presence of his father. So we could have the presence of God. You know how ironic it is that Jesus, to give us joy for a fragment of time, would lose the joy that he always experienced with the Father. So we can all have the joy that we always wanted. That's how costly your joy is. So if you're a believer, If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is for you. This helps us remember how costly the joy that Jesus gave us or give us 
was. So I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a few seconds there for you to bring before the Lord whatever is in your heart that is taking from you the joy that you already have available in Jesus. If you need to repent, you repent. If you need to ask for forgiveness, you ask for forgiveness. If you are seeking for this joy somewhere else on another person, bring it before the Lord. Confess your sins and then we participate. Amen? Let's do that. Now I'm going to ask you to please remove the side of the cup where you find the bread. And the Bible says that the Lord Jesus and the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now you may remove the other side of the cup. And the text says, the Bible says that in the same way, Jesus after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, we are grateful that we get to see and taste and understand how costly our joy was. Please help us remember it. Because there and only there, we experience the joy that you offer. So please, Lord, just as these elements enter into our system, may the cross of Jesus Christ enter into our souls and stay there. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...